reading through this passage. We're going to read through chapter 5. You can join me in this. There's 13 verses here, so it's not an extensively long chapter. But 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned, that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present. Him who has so done this deed, um, he's, so he's already judged this one who's done this. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ... Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit, spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, who, who was sacrificed for us, therefore let us, uh, let us keep the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I write to you, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner. For what have I to do with judging those who uh, also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Let's pray. Father... We have a, a topic this morning that we come to that is a, it's a difficult passage in some ways. It's a challenging passage, uh, and it's a passage that oftentimes there's pushback uh, from well-meaning believers. Lord, there's a, oftentimes a misunderstanding of church discipline and how it is to be done and why it is to be done. What is the heart behind it? That seems cold. That seems harsh. That, seems, you know, that doesn't seem Christ-like. And yet, in the area of church discipline, Lord, you have given us very clear instructions. And so this morning, as we look at this topic, as we look at this chapter, and we look at the problems that were going on, again, more problems in the church there in 1 Corinthians. Lord, there are problems that mirror the problems churches all over America are facing, even this morning. And Father, I pray that for us right here at First Baptist Geneva, Lord, as we look to your word this morning, would you teach us? Would you help us to understand better uh, the, the, the purpose, the idea, the heart, the hope that is, that is captured in church discipline? And help us, Lord, to understand why you uh, command it and how you use it. So, Lord, I just pray for clarity in thought and speech this morning as we uh, minister through the, the ministry of the Word of God this morning. Bless now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, 
Paul turns from the division in the church that we've talked about, these schisms, to discipline in the church. And the, the word discipline usually stirs up negative images in people's minds, you know, thoughts of vindictiveness and judgmentalism. That's what we'll often hear is, boy, you're being judgmental. You're just getting back at somebody. But true biblical dis- discipline is, is not either of those things. It's not vindictive or judgmental. Our, our culture today, and folks, this includes the, the church, is averse to discipline. We don't like discipline. We're, we're comfortable with the idea of self-discipline, you know, bringing ourselves in line with, with certain standards to reach a long-term goal like losing weight. We, 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 we don't have a problem with self-discipline to lose weight or changing our eating habits or even earning an additional degree. My son just starting, starting a new job, and they're going to put him through school, through electrician school, and he's, he's, it's going to take discipline. We're two nights a week after a full day of work. He's going to have to go for three hours and sit and do school. That's discipline. It takes that. We don't mind that type of discipline because we feel like we have control over it. You know? and, the, and the person, um, and the reason that we don't like it, we, here's the thing, is, is we're not, we're, we're, we're comfortable when we make the decision. We're, we're, we're very uncomfortable with the idea of being disciplined by someone or something outside of ourselves. And the reason for that is because of this rampant individualism that is in America today. American Christianity even, we're, we're consumed with this individualism. Now, preacher, what does that mean? It means this. It means we're self-reliant. It means we're independent. It means we're stiff-necked and stubborn and proud. And bottom line is it goes back to pride. Like, like we looked at in chapter 4 with the problems that they're facing in Corinth, it, it, the pride was rampant in the community and pride was rampant in the church. There was pride. And folks, we struggle with that today. Uh, I think if we're honest, we'd all raise our hands and say, yeah, yeah, I struggle with pride. I struggle with, you know, I want my way. You know, and, and we can even carry that so far. It's my way or the highway often. And, and, and that's a wrong attitude. It's a proud attitude. It's a sinful attitude. It's an individualistic attitude, which is what they were facing here. Jonathan Lehman says, For the average person in Western culture today, every attachment is negotiable. We are all free agents, and every relationship and life station is a contract that can be renegotiated or canceled. Whether we are dealing with the prince the parents, the spouse, the salesman, the boss, the ballot box, the courtroom judge, or, of course, the local church. I am principally obligated to myself and maximizing my life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. I retain power to veto everything. Folks, that attitude is in the church. church. Amen? Amen? I won. Um, it's in the church. That attitude is in the church today. The attitude that we sit here and we criticize the world for having that attitude, and it's all about me, it's all about what I want and what I want to do. Folks, it is rampant in our own flesh. We struggle with this very thing. And the reality for us this morning is that we in the church must understand that church discipline is healthy and necessary. On the surface, now as we read that passage, we read chapter 5, all of that, on the surface it appears to be a chapter about sexual immorality. And, and in, in a sense it is. He's, he's correcting that and we'll talk about that. It is, but it really isn't. 
The, the, the focus of the chapter is not on the sexual immorality. I mean, he ju- he, Paul's going to lay down judgment, but it's really, we're going to see that it's more a judgment on the church, and he's, he's got a problem with the church. So Paul had written them before with instructions about this sin. In, in verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my epistle. Now, we understand there was a letter. We understand there had to have been a previous letter that we don't, it's not recorded in Scripture. We don't even know where the letter is. It was lost. But whatever was written there, it, it wasn't, God inspired in the sense that these are, and everything he would have said in there that we need is in the scriptures, okay? So we're not missing anything because we're missing the letter. But he alludes to this letter that he'd already written there to the the church in Corinth. And he says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. So he's addressed this issue before. This was, and the issue we're facing now may not even be a new issue. It could have been something that was already, but he had addressed this issue. This is what you're to do. You're not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Now, number one, the first point we're going to look at is this. Paul identifies the sin. Now, there's actually two sins here that he's identifying. The first is the sin of the culprit. We'll call it the sin of the culprit. It's the man that is being talked about. In verse 1, it says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such, such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. Now, when we talk about that, that phrase there, sexual immorality, that phrase doesn't just, it's not just this one act that is being addressed right here. It's dealing with, with adultery. That's including that. It really, it's this. It's fornication. And we understand the word fornication. We don't use that word anymore, but it's a word we probably ought to use because we've, we've made, we've made having, having sexual relations outside of marriage, we've given it a fun name like it's a fair. The fair is fun, right? Go ride the Ferris wheel and, and, and throw darts at balloons and stuff. We give it a, a cute name like an affair. Someone had an affair. No, it's not an affair. It's adultery. It's sin. But it is fornication. It is sexual immorality. So let's just define that. So folks, biblically, anything outside of the bonds of marriage... Man and a woman, marriage is sexual sin. It's sexual immorality. And so Paul, that's what he's dealing with here. It's sexual immorality. But to the, to the scale of this and the level of this, he's dealing with. And it says here that this man has his father's wife. Now, we're talking about, some would say it's incest. Some, some even speculated that... that um, He was married now to his father's wife. It doesn't seem that more I read, more I've studied this, it seems as though there is a a, there is adultery going on. And this man is now with his father's wife. They, and, it, and the word has indicates that it wasn't a one-time thing. It wasn't a, they, they, they fell in infidelity. This was, this is an ongoing act. It has not stopped. It is an ongoing act. So when the church doors open on Sunday morning, this couple comes in. This man is with his, his father's wife. Now, I don't know if they're divorced. It doesn't seem that the man is dead because if we look in chapter 2 or verse or or 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we see that it appears from there that the man is alive. So this woman's husband is alive. They may be separated. They may have been divorced. We don't know what the circumstances are, but that's all irrelevant. He, this son now, is with his father's wife. They are together, and it is an ongoing, immoral relationship. And Paul calls it out. It says he's already called it out to them before. He told them what should be done. They haven't dealt with it. No, now he's dealing with it. And what's sad about this, when you, when you look at this, is, is that the Jews would have frowned on this behavior gravely. 
But here's what's interesting. As promiscuous and as perverted as the Roman culture was, they frowned on this. They frowned on this very sin. They, that was like unheard of. You didn't, this type of an incestual relationship, they would have not done. So when they look at, when you look at that, it puts in context of what a grave sin this is. Now, folks, I'm not going to say it has to be a super, super grave sexual sin. Look, if it's sexual immorality, if it's fornication, it's sin. And by this, it's something that needs to be dealt with. It needs to be addressed. And Paul deals with it because they have not, at this point, dealt with it. So, so Paul, what he does is, then the greater rebuke here, the second thing he deals with is the sin in the church. And their sin is this. There's, there's several things that are going on in the sin of the church and the way that they handle this. The first is their attitude. Their attitude was sinful. Look at verse 2. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. So the first attitude problem they got is inflation. They have this inflated attitude. You are puffed up. Here's their pride. They're proud. They're proud that they've, they've allowed this guy to stay in fellowship. They haven't, they're proud of their tolerance. They're insensitive. It says, and have not rather mourned. They should be mourning this sin in their church. They should be mourning the fact that a brother in Christ... Now, understand, there's nothing in the text that would indicate this woman is a believer. Paul says nothing about judging her in this because she's outside of the church. She's not a professing believer that we would understand. He is a part of the church. He is a professing believer. There's a different standard, and we're going to get to that. They were, they were insensitive. They should have been heartbroken. They should have been grieving the fact that this sin was in their midst and it was in the body of Christ there. And then there's the inaction, the sin of their inaction and the attitude of their inaction. That to this point, they've done absolutely nothing about it. That he, uh, that, that, uh, the verse continued, that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. They should not be puffed up. They ought to be brokenhearted about it. They ought to be grieved about it. And they should have already moved to remove him from the church. They should have done something about it, that he should be taken away from among you. He should not be in fellowship with the church. Understand, he's an unconfessed, unrepentant, ongoing sexual sin in the midst of the body of Christ, and they've just tolerated it. When he starts verse 2, he says, And you, Paul is saying, the ones who should have been most concerned were the ones most complacent. They should have been most concerned. The community, here's, here's a situation where the community around them would have looked at that and said, man, can you believe what's going on in that church? And within the church, they're going, boy, we're so great. We're so, we're so accepting and loving. They were complacent. And what were they puffed up about? What were they so proud about? They were proud of their progressiveness. They were, they were progressive. They were, they were proud of being liberal. They were proud of being tolerant. And this attitude is prevalent even in our culture today, folks, and in churches all across America this morning. You know, we have at least, uh, we, we, we have um, once great churches. Once, churches that were once just great churches who n proudly, now they're proudly declaring how progressive and inclusive they are. I'm not going to name names this morning. I'm not going to do that. But I'll, I'll give you a quote, and, and I heard the quote from a staff person on that church, and they said this. They said, we have, this is who we are. This is who we are. Not us at First Baptist Geneva. We have homosexuals, transvestites, 
cohabitating, pro-abortion, not only attending our church, but they are giving and serving in the church. Now, if you don't understand why that's a problem, I'd love to have a conversation with you after church. But the problem is, those are blatant, right out in the open, open-faced sin that these people are engaging in, and the church is openly embracing it. Now, understand this. All right, so let me, let me say this first. So, so the church in Corinth and, and multitudes of churches today glory and take pride in their liberalism. Okay, they take pride in that. They embrace what God detests. Now, I, I want to say this, and hear me on this. It, it, and we've had this happen. We've had this happen, and there are those in here who could testify to this. Uh, I'm not going to rail on someone who's living in a sinful lifestyle if they visit our church. If a homosexual wants to visit our church, I, I, I embrace that. I want, if, they, if they're willing to come and sit under the Word of God... Praise God. That's what we want. Amen. And we'll pray for them. We'll pray that God changes their heart, convicts them of their sinful lifestyle. They'll turn from that. Now, before we go to pointing our fingers too much at that lifestyle, think about the sin you have in your life. What's your pet sin? What you hiding in your pocket this morning, metaphorically? What sin, are, what sin are you hiding in your pocket? What's your pet sin? You know, we go, oh, that's homosexual. Oh, that's terrible. Now, scriptures are very clear. It is. And the, and, and the things that are going on morally are corrupt. But folks, we've got our own things. You know, i got a gossip problem. But I, I like that. I like to keep it. Nobody really knows because I'm real sly with it. Because I, I say, Brother Raymond, we need to pray for so-and-so. You know, you, you know, let me tell you, we need to pray for them. So I need to tell you all the gory details so you'll know how to pray for them. And we gossip and we hide it under the, this need for prayer. So, so we have these things. But look, if, a, if, a, if someone who's homosexual comes in, they want to listen. Now, now they just like anybody else. And I'm going to say this. I'm going to say this now out loud, okay? I don't care if you're married and been married 50 years. There's a right way and a wrong way to act in the sanctuary. This ain't the drive-in, okay? So that'll give you an idea. This is not the drive-in. This is not a place to drape all over each other. This is a place to, 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 to have... To, to be appropriate in our public displays of affection. Amen? Amen? Amen. Okay, so, so whether you're a member and you've been here 50 years or, or whatever the need may be, whatever the situation is, if, if they come in, they're pro appropriate, we're going to welcome them here, okay? We wanna, we're going to love on them to the extent that we're trying to love them to Christ as a lost person, okay? And, uh, however, no one who is not a professing believer in the Lord Jesus Christ will be allowed to join our church or to serve in our church. Amen? This is the called out. The church is the called out. This is not the Geneva Community Center. Okay? This is not what we are. That's not what the church is. The church is the called out. When we gather together, now, this is the crowd. This isn't our congregation. We have part of our congregation is gathered here this morning, but this is a crowd. We have folks that are sometimes here. We have folks that are occasionally here. We have folks that have never been here before with us this morning. So this, this is, and we want that. We want, the, we want people in here. But when we gather together, folks, this is the body of Christ. And if, and, and if someone's going to be a member of the church, they have to be a professing. There has to be a testimony of salvation by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. Amen? 
mean, there has to be that. There has to be that testimony of their salvation. And, and if they're going to be a member, if they're going to join, or if they're going to serve in ministries, they got to be a part of that. they got to be in line with us doctrinally. Um, no one living, listen, no one living in open, unconfessed, unrepentant sin will be allowed into church membership. You come and you go, hey, you know, we love it here. I'm glad you love it here. But, but you're living together. You're in an inappropriate relationship. You can't, you can't join the church. Because the first thing we'd have to do is exercise church discipline because you're living in an immoral relationship. Amen? Amen. So it sounds harsh, but it's not harsh. There's standards that God has set up that we have to, we have to adhere to. But folks, we're going to love folks that come into the church. And if they don't come, come in here trying to start trouble and be a problem, they don't come with an agenda. They come, they want to hear the word of God. They want to see. We're going to pray for them and love on them, okay? So um, how could we embrace sin? You got to remember Christ died for sin, we, we, our job's not to embrace sin and, and, to, and to explain it away and rationalize it and make people feel good within that sin. It's to confront with their sin. I didn't get saved because somebody told me how great I was. I got saved when I heard that I was horrible, that I was a sinner, that I was going to hell because of my sin. And that's when I realized, man, Jesus died for my sins. I'd been in church as a little kid, never heard that. Jesus died for me. And so that's how I can know is I've placed my faith in Christ. I'm trusting in him and him alone to take me to heaven. That's, that's salvation. We're not going to embrace sin. The Lord Jesus Christ did not die on the cross of Calvary in order to give his people license to sin. So as believers, there, there's a different standard. We're going to get to that. What shall, Romans 1-2 says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Oh, we're under grace. God's grace. He's forgiven our sin. Yes, he has. But that's not a license to go and commit more sin. That's not what we do. We don't commit more sin just so grace can abound. Certainly not. How shall he or how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Folks, we as believers, we've got to get out of sin. We've got to quit living in sin. We've got to change our life. Folks, God doesn't condone uh, or listen. He doesn't con con condemn sin in the sinner and then condone it in the saints. You hear that? God doesn't condone, uh, condemn sin in the sinners and then condone it in the saint. 1 Peter 4, 17 tells us that judgment must begin in the house of God. And, and so what Paul is saying is there, there's sin in the camp. You need to get it out. The Corinthians failed to understand that their broad-minded attitude towards sin wasn't helping, but it was actually hurting this offender. It was hurting this man because now he's not having to deal with his sin. He's just living in it, and everybody's accepting of it, and everything just goes on as normal like there was no harm done while everybody's looking at him, and everybody's talking about it, and everybody knows it's going on, but they're, 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 they're turning their faces. No one's addressing the fact that it is sin, and it hurts his relationship with Christ. It hurts his testimony, and I believe it goes long enough unchecked, it could hurt him physically in the fact that he could die. God could take him out if he's truly a believer. But it hurts the offender. It hurts the church and the testimony of the church. Uh, not to mention the sorrow that it causes to, to Paul and to the Lord himself. So their, their, um, their attitude was sinful, but their actions were sinful as well. For, verse 9, verse nine, he says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. 
Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then, you would, you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an ex- extortioner. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? Folks, here's what they were doing. Paul had told them these things. They were judging. Here's what they were doing. They were judging and shunning the lost world around them. They had isolated themselves in the church. Folks, we're to be, we're to be uh, in the world, not of the world. Amen? We don't go live in the sin of the world, but we live among the sin in the world. Does that, you see the difference? We're not living in the sin. We live among the sin. We can't separate from the sin that's out in this lost world, or we'd have no way to witness to people. We'd have no way to share the gospel with them. Paul says if you were to separate from those, you'd have to come out of the world because their sinful people are everywhere. That's not what I was saying, but what they've done is isolated themselves. They've shunned the lost world, but what they've done is embraced this egregious sin that is right in the midst of the camp. The thing they should be shunning, they're embracing and they're loving and they're relishing and they're glorying in how tolerant they are. Wow, we're loving on this lost brother and us loving him in his, uh, this, this just heinous sin. Boy, that might bring him back to Jesus. That's not what Scripture says to do. They were embracing it. They were glorying in that that tolerance of the sin. Church, it it is not our place to judge the world outside, this lost world. I've said this several times here. Um, We we get mad sometimes. I hear people and we get upset and we're, we're all at a shock at the lost world acting lost. Why are we surprised when these lost politicians act like Sinful, greedy, selfish, lost politicians. Why, why do, we, why, why do we, we get all upset about that? The fact is, we're not to judge the world outside. But the fact is that it is our job to judge within the body of Christ, within the church. And uh, I could go all into the judging thing. And you can look, Scripture is very clear. I'm not to judge your, the, the, the motive of your heart. I can't judge your heart. I can't judge truly whether you're saved or not. That's not my place to judge. I don't get to judge and condemn you to heaven or hell. That's not my place. But we are absolutely to judge within the body. We're to judge the actions. And when an action doesn't look right, we're to investigate. We're to look into those things. And, and folks, it's, we, we should be doing this. It should be ongoing. It should be ongoing, little, little conversations about those things. We talk about having a, a wingman or accountability. I mean, if Cliff sees something in my life, if Cliff sees an attitude with me that's, man, he goes, man, that's a sinful attitude. I hope Cliff will say, preacher, can I, can I talk to you for a moment? Seriously, can I just, and share it. You know what? He may be absolutely right. He may be wrong. He may, be, he may see something that's not there. But I need to be willing to listen and then and go, Okay, you're right. You know, I, that, that my attitude's wrong right there. That's a sinful attitude or whatever. Folks, we've got to hold each other accountable. That's where health comes in. Now, if that goes on the right way, we avoid. We don't even have to deal with a lot of the church discipline because that's already being done. It's going all the time. That's going on. But the scripture says there, Paul says, do you not judge those who are inside? He's asking. 
Are you not judging? You're judging the world out there that's lost. You're not judging within the church. You're supposed to judge in the church and not out there. You've got it backwards, folks. So that was, that was the problem. Their actions were sinful, and then their inaction was sinful. Verse 3, 4, I indeed am absent in body but present in spirit. Have already, I already have judged as though I were present him who has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he states the authority by which we do church discipline. It's not my authority. It's not the authority of Pastor Conrad. It's the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, when you gather together, so it is to be done as the body of Christ. This isn't the elders. Don't make it. We're not going. The three of us aren't going to vote and excommunicate somebody from the church. We may be the ones having to deal with it face on in a situation. But if it comes to a point where there has to be church discipline and we're talking about excommunicating someone from the church, then we're going to bring it to the church. We're going to present the case. They get to present their case. And we're going to, in the church, we have to vote on that. Okay? So it's, it's, it's when we gather together along with my spirit. Paul's saying, I'm there in spirit with the power. It is in the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what he says to do. He says, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord uh, Jesus. And again, he says, your glorying is no good. So Paul does what they already knew to do and should have already done, and they have not done it. They have been inactive, and it was sinful. And Paul, you can read this. When I read that, you can tell he's a little miffed. He's upset about this, that they have not done what they should do. And he, he says, you know, I don't have to have five conversations. This is widely reported in the community, in the church. This is open. The guy's living in this sin. You've embraced. This has been ongoing. It's probably already been addressed and nothing has happened. Somebody said something and nothing's happened. The church has not acted on it. And he says the church needs to act on it. Um, so Paul does what they should have done, they knew to do, and they haven't done. And he commands the man to be disciplined by the church, and he judged this sin. Now listen, throughout this passage, there's some pretty harsh language. And we're told that this man needs to, he needs to be taken away from among you, verse 2. He needs to be delivered over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, in verse 5. He says that the church is not to keep company with not even to eat with such a person in verse 11, and, and that he needs to be put away from among them in verse 13. Paul's very clear. This is not a, this is not a simple, easy thing. This is a difficult thing. And, 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 and so, man, people go, man, that's harsh. That's hard. Folks, it makes sense that it's hard, right? Because it's discipline. This is spiritual church discipline. It's not supposed to be pleasant, if we're disciplining our children, it's not to be, oh, your behavior stinks. Here's a bowl of ice cream. This is great. Just, I don't want you to do that anymore because anytime you do it, I'm going to give you a bowl of ice cream. That's not going to work. It's got to be difficult. It should be difficult. It shouldn't be a pleasant experience. Hear this. Hear this now. Faithful Christians are not even to eat with church members who have ruined their testimony by open sin and have not made things right with the church and the Lord. Preacher, that's hard. Don't take it up with me. Take it up with him. This is God's, this is God's design. This is speaking through Paul. The Holy Spirit has said this. We believers, if you're a faithful Christian, you love the Lord, you want what's best for that person, someone who is 
who has ruined their testimony in open sin. It's confronted. They do not confess it. They do not turn from it. The believer, we are not to even have a meal with them. Well, we're, you know, we, we have a meal together. We go have coffee because, you know, we're, I'm trying to, to reach them. I'm trying to help them. Now, if you want to help them, sit down in a room together. Sit down in a room together and have a face-to-face confrontation with the Word of God about their sin. Don't go sit down in a restaurant and be kumbaya because you know what happens? We go to the restaurant and we never say anything about what, what the problem is. You may. I don't think generally it happens. I think we're fellowshipping because maybe they're a good friend. But if they're not repentant... Now, I, I, I've shared with, I've shared with uh, Henry about a friend of mine had a great impact in my life, and my friend has absolutely lost his mind. If he were in this area, I'm not going to go and fellowship with him over a meal. But I will sit in a car with him, and I'll confront his sin. In a loving way, but I'm going to confront his sin. I'm not going to hang out at the coffee shop and act like everything's great and smile and we're, we're just wonderful and everybody sees. I'm not going to do that. Well, preacher, that's, that's hard. Now you're, you put, That's what Scripture says to do. And we're going to look at it in a minute why we do that. So th- th- this is part of, folks, it's important because we as the body of Christ play an important part in church discipline. And church discipline, again, is not done to be vindictive or hateful or, or, or judgmental. It's done for the good of the person. And we're going to see this now in just a moment. It's the good of the person, the good of the church, the good of our community. And we'll look at that. If a faithful church member follows in a, 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 or fellowships in a friendly way with a Christian living in sin, listen to this, that member is condoning their sin and disobeying the Word of God. So now they're in sin and we now, we're by, by this fellowship, this type of fellowship, we're condoning their sin and we're being disobedient to God. So now we've gotten into sin because we want to be tolerant and accepting and loving and embracing. You with me? Have I lost you? We think by our continued fellowship and friendship and associating with, accepting them as they are, that we're helping them. And folks, the opposite is true. We may very well be interfering with the work that the Lord is doing to bring them to repentance. We think what we're doing is helping, but we're acting contrary to Scripture. If we act contrary to Scripture, we're not helping. In fact, we're hurting. We may be interfering with running, we're running interference with what the Holy Spirit is doing in their life to try to bring them to repentance and in right relationship with Him. Amen? All right, so number two, the second point of this big thing is this, is the, the, heart of, um, the heart and hope of church discipline. So what is the heart and the hope of church discipline? Number one, it's for the good of the culprit. Again, this, this man who is in sin, it's for his good. Deliver... Verse 5 again says, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, there's probably no more, uh, no more terrible sentence that could have been passed down than that right there. He is going to be put out of the church and he is, he is delivered to Satan. He really is put out because when you're put out from the church, folks, do you understand that as a member of the church, we really there's a protective umbrella over you? There's a spiritual umbrella. You know, Satan, we, we think sometimes Satan can just do whatever he wants in your life. He cannot do whatever he wants in, in your life. And when you're under the umbrella of the church, you're in right fellowship with the church, you're in right relationship with the Lord, there is protection in that. 
It doesn't mean that there's things that cannot happen, but there's nothing Satan's doing in your life that God has not allowed. God may have even directed it. You know, think about Job. Job was not in sin, and he was turned over to Satan. Satan was allowed to work in his life, and God said, nope, you can do this, but you can't go any further than that right there. Without God's permission, nothing's going to happen. God, God turned Peter over. Peter, a disciple walking with the Lord, and he was turned over to Satan. He was allowed, Satan was allowed to take him and sift him. We preached on that not too long ago. Sift him like wheat. And you know what it did? It shook him up and it got that pride, that lasting pride, that little bit that was left in there. It shook that out because God knew what Peter needed in order for him to go do the ministry he was called to do. So God used Satan to, to do that work. It's amazing. It's amazing. But I tell you what, what a terrible sentence that is to be put out of the church and knowing by being put out of the church now that that one is being delivered unto Satan for the destruction, look, the destruction of the flesh. This man was to suffer excommunication with the added horror, the horror of being put in Satan's hands. Now that word destruction there, it means ruin or death or punishment. And it indicates the physical consequences resulting from this excommunication. Paul uses this word to describe the ruin to come upon mankind after the rapture of the church, which is God's... Now, the church, when you think about the church, it's God's spirit-filled vehicle that is holding back the, 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 the very worst manifestations of evil in, in this age of grace. And when, that church, when the church is taken out, he uses this word to talk about the destruction that will come, this destruction there. He also used it again to describe the everlasting destruction which will overtake unbelievers at the final return of Christ. He uses this word again when he talks about the power and draw that, that, uh, that money has in people, the power to snare people, and, and it, it draws them into foolish and harmful lusts that can lead to a person's utter ruin. Their destruction. So he's talking about the, 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 the being out from under that protection and the physical, the physical, our flesh, the physical attacks that can come. Now I'm gonna tell you, that'll get your attention. Henry, you get to rock bottom, which way do you look? Ain't but one way to look, right? And if and if it takes that, if it takes God doing in the physical, allowing Satan to have a hold or he's doing whatever the work is, if God gets us to flat on our backs at rock bottom, there ain't but one place to look, and that's up. And maybe that's what God's trying to do. And that's how he works. So he's talking about the flesh, and it could be physical. But there's another thought of this as well in the way that we use this word flesh and we understand this. Now, Matthew 26, 41 says, Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, that, that can be both areas, okay? That can be when you talk about flesh, it can be talking about the, the physical flesh. We want to sleep. We want to eat. We, we want to be, our flesh, our body wants to be wants pleasure. It wants what we want. I want what I want. That's a, that's a body thing, but it's also folks, it's, it's our spirit. It's our, it's this nature that we have this, this, this carnal fleshly. We talk about the carnal nature, our fleshly nature. It's the old man. It's the battle between the old man and the new man. You understand we got a new nature. We didn't get a resurrected nature. We still have our old nature and we have the spirit of God living in us and the flesh wars against the spirit. Y'all with me? So when we talk about the flesh, we can talk about the physical flesh that, I mean, boils came on Job's body and, 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 Again, that wasn't because of his sin. The Lord dealt with him in other areas later on in that book that you see. But that part, that, that was done, was not about his sin. 
This is to turn someone over, and, and Satan may be given right to do whatever he wants with your flesh, but the idea is to, to save the spirit, okay? Not to save from, if you're saved, you're saved. Now, I'm not talking about, boy, you've gotten out of, if you are saved, do you know a Christian can do anything a lost person can? Do you know that? I hear people go, well, that person fell into immorality. They left their wife. Well, they must not even be saved. That's, that's just the way we rationalize it away to make ourselves feel good about it. The, the, we're going to read with the Corinthians. We've already read. They're carnal-minded. And there are people that you can, be a, you can be a believer and be carnally minded. You can be not mature enough. You're still walking in a fleshly attitude in a fleshly way. And that's part of what's being talked about here as well. So not only mean the body, but it means this, 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 to be carnally minded, to be fleshly minded. This, we, we still have this human nature and we have moral weakness and we have passions that are old flesh still. They're there. Paul struggled with it. He wrote about it. I do what I want, don't want to do, and I don't do what I do want to do. And the flesh wars against the spirit, and the spirit wars against the flesh. So we, we have these things. And, and remember, they, so some of the, the scriptures, Romans, Paul talks so exclusive or extensively here. In Romans 7, 5, he says, For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death in, our, in the flesh. Romans 7, 18, For I knew... For I, for I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. He's not just talking about the physical body. He's talking about my moral being, my, my, my old nature that is still there. For, for to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For, for Romans 8, 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Romans 8, 8, so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. When we're walking in the flesh, walk in the spirit. Galatians 5, 16, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And he goes on, he talks about the way the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit wars against the flesh. But the idea there is we struggle with our flesh, this fleshly carnal nature within us. And so when, we're, when, when, when we get into sin, let's say, listen, if, if I fell into immoral sin and... and, and I say I had an affair. Y'all got to deal with that. And then number one, it's going to be first thing you're going to do, you're going to fire. I hope you don't fire me. First thing, I hope you come deal with me spiritually, but you're going to fire my, 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 my hiney, you know? <laughs> you're going to get rid of me. Now, we're not just going to fire somebody in the congregation, but I could still be a part of the fellowship here if I confess my sin, if I repent of that sin, I turn from that sin. And if things are done right, you may be able to be restored. But I believe there's things that when, when you're in this place, there's sin that just disqualifies you. You fall in that, you're done. You can go serve God in some, a lot of ways, but not in this place right here. Okay? So y'all would need to deal with that. But, but somebody else, it's a deacon in the church. A deacon falls. You know what? We're going to deal with that. They're going to need to step back as a deacon. They're going to need to resign as a deacon. But we're going to deal with it. And it's going to depend on how they handle it. If they respond the right way, and they repent of their sin, they confess that sin, they turn from that sin, they get that right. You know what we're going to do? We're going to forgive them, we're going to love them, we're going to restore them in ministry. Amen. May not be a deacon anymore. I don't know why I'm looking at you, Brent. <laughs> I just noticed I've zeroed in on Brent over there. Brent, I need to talk to you after church. I forgot to mention that, before, and, uh, but I just thought this is a good time to let you know I need to talk to you after church. Um, we're going to deal with that, but say he doesn't repent. He doesn't confess it. Then, then if we deal with it, you know, say I went and talked to him and he says, 
I don't care what you say. I'm going to have fun. You know what? I deserve this. Then me and Raymond and John are going to go talk to him, and he does this. And then we're going to grab the rest of the deacons. We're going to all talk to him. He says, no, you know what we're going to do? Then we're going to bring him before the church, and we're going to present it to you, and you guys are going to say, nope, nope. You, you need to either get that right, or we're going to vote you out of the church. And you're going to put him out of the church. And I'm not going to go to lunch with Brent. I'm not going to hang out with Brent. I may talk to Brent. I may text Brent and say, Brent, you need to get your life right. Brent, I love you, man. You need to, you need to confess this and get this right. But we're not going to sit down and have a meal together and act like everything's hunky-dory. Are you with me? Okay. So it's the flesh. And the idea is when the flesh, it, it, we, we, we let that flesh get out there and let, let, and, and let Satan work on that. God will use Satan to shake us back into right relationship. And that's the whole idea, folks, is to come back into right relationship with God. That's the, perp- that's the heart of this. That's the hope of this. So the hope of the, the hope of the excommunication then is that expelling the man from the fellowship of the church and, and clearing the way for Satan to get his hands on him has, uh, was not an end to itself but a means to an end. Verse 5, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the day of the Lord Jesus is the day of the rapture and resurrection when the spirit which returns to God at death uh, is reunited with the redeemed body. It was put back together. We're redeemed. We go out and be with the Lord. So that that man was to, to be handed over to Satan for his own good. That's the reason that this church discipline is done. It is the, the, the hope is that he comes back into right relationship, right fellowship with God. Here's the deal. If, if I get into sin... Here's what's going to happen in eternity. There have been folks that haven't been dealt with with church discipline. They never got bright with God. And in eternity, they're going to go, boy, I wish someone had said something. I wish somebody had disciplined me because maybe I would have turned my life around because they're going to go into that with regret. They're going to stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ, not the great white throne of judgment. If they're a truly born-again believer, they're going to be standing there before the Lord Jesus Christ in shame and humiliation and embarrassment, which we're all going to be in anyway. But imagine you have turned your back on God. You've lived in open, unrepentant, unconfessed sin. You've just lived in that. And you could have had so much more, and God wanted so much more for you. It needs to be dealt with. And it's done for that purpose, to bring this person back into right relationship. Number two, it's for the good of the church. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out, of the, out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For, for indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Now, leaven to the Jews, it was always a symbol of sin and corruption. So, so before Passover, before they would do Passover, they, they always, they would scour the house. They would wipe down everything because they would have leaven in their house. They would make leavened bread. But when you had to, coming into the Passover, you had the, the, the festival and the, 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 the time of unleavened bread. And so they had to get all the leaven out because if you've, I've, I've not done any, I don't know, I've ever used yeast or anything in a, I guess you have self-rising flour and stuff, so I've never had to put anything in. But if you, if you don't have that leaven in it, that yeast in it, it's going to be unleavened bread. But it only takes a little bit, right? It only takes a little bit. So they would scour their houses to get that out. They would get all of the leaven out because they knew if even a little bit of that got into the unleavened bread, it ruined it all. 
So you see the picture there, that when it pictures sin, what he's telling us is, look, like they got the leaven out because only, it only takes a little bit of sin in there to ruin it all. Folks, if we have unconfessed, unrepentant, open sin in the church, it, the, the danger is it can corrupt everyone. Look, it, it, it's church discipline. One of the purposes is it is about fear. Man, you know... You, you go, man, you, you know what? You can go to a, res- to a resort. You can go to a resort. We're going to send you this resort. And you get three meals a day. You get to work out every day. You get, you get some time out in the sun. So you got this resort you can go to. You might be, you might be like, oh, that'd be okay. Well, what if that resort is the, the penitentiary? Right? So... The thought of being put in a 6 by 10 or 6 by 12 uh, cell and the door locking, that's all the motivation I need right there. I, I, ain't, I don't want to do nothing that's going to get me put in jail. I, that, that, that doesn't appeal to me a bit. That, may, that resort living for some people, like, man, they get out and they go commit another crime so they can go right back in. That ain't for me. I don't want no part of that. It's a deterrent. Folks, when we, when we get the sin out of the church, it's a deterrent. It's to see that a, a new Christian gets to say, you know what? Sin is serious, and we deal with it. It's serious, and we get it out. We get it out because, listen, I, I, have, I don't have little kids in the church anymore. When I had little kids, I didn't want them to see blatant sin walking around in the church being undealt with. I, I want them to see the right way to deal with that and how we need to separate from that and understand that in the right context. Are you with me? Sin is serious, folks. Sin kills. But here's the deal. Christ died for sin. Why in any way, shape, or form are we going to embrace it? Are we going to coddle it? We're going to pet it. We're going to tolerate it. Scripture makes it very clear. Like leaven, get it all out. Deal with it. Get it out. And that's why if there's even the little things, deal with it. Henry, something's going on, and, and we got to deal with Henry. We deal with Henry. If Henry needs to deal with me, we deal with me. And we, and we you know what? A lot of times you, you, we got little church disciplines going on all the time if we'll hold each other accountable. And we don't get to the big ones that have to come before the church. We haven't had to do anything in four and a half years. We've not had to bring somebody before the church for church discipline. Doesn't mean we wouldn't. We would. In fact, Brent, I need to see you after, <laughs> after the service. Just, just it has nothing to do with this. But just so you know, I need to see you. Verse 8, and we're just about done here, but verse 8 says, Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Um, folks, Christ... He's been sacrificed once for all as our, as our real Passover lamb. He, he's been sacrificed. And therefore, we believers, we must rid ourselves once and for all of everything leaven stands for, sin. Everything that he died for. We have to, we've got to get that out of our lives. He died for that. How can we embrace that? He did not die for our sin so that we could continue in it. That is not at all. But look at the words that Paul uses here. He says, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness. Now, I want to to explain this because malice refers primarily to the the vicious disposition 
and desires of the human heart. So malice really deals more with what's in your heart. It's the wicked and vicious desires that you have. The word he uses for wickedness there, it suggests the active outworking of the wicked human nature. So what he's talking about is that the wickedness is the outworking of the wicked, evil malice that's in our heart. I mean, it's one thing to have it in your heart. It's another one. It's outworking through wickedness in in the way that we live our lives. Paul says, look, get that out of your life. We don't, we don't need to, uh, we, need, we need to keep the feast not with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Put away malice and wickedness and, and walk in sincerity and truth in our relationship with Christ. Third thing is this, and we'll be done. Uh, the third reason we do this, the, the, the heart and the hope of church discipline is for the good of the community. Folks, it's, it's for the good of the person. When we do church discipline right, the idea is that they get right. That's the idea. When we do church discipline right, it protects the church body. We want to protect this. We want to protect unity. We want to protect that we don't have a sinful... We, don't, we want to protect the testimony of our church in the local community. Boy, you get that blatant sin. I'm not going there. You know who goes there. That person, they do. You hear what they... You know, all that. Protect the testimony. Protect the purity. That, that we've got to do that. But the third thing is it's good for the community. Listen, the church cannot change the world if the church is like the world. We're a peculiar people. We should be. It means we're weird. It means we're different. We should be different than everybody else. The lost world around us, they, that, you know what? I can go on the street. I can talk to lost people. They understand sin better than we do in the church. They'll give you a laundry list of things they know are not right, things you shouldn't do. And they tell you, if you're a Christian, you shouldn't do this, 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 or this. And a lot of them on the list, we Christians go, oh, that's not really sin. That's not a bad thing to do. That's really a good thing. That's okay. God wants me to be happy, so that, that's okay if I do that. The, church, the world understands it. Folks, we have to be different from the world. One of the, one of the sad testimonies is that divorce rates in the church are really no different than divorce rates in the lost world around us. In fact, I would guess that now they're probably higher because most of the lost world has abandoned getting married to start with. The, the church, at least, people in the church get married, and then, but, but we get divorced at the same rate. We don't, we don't see it differently. I had a friend when I was coming up. He was getting married right out of high school, and his attitude was the same as a lot of Christians have. Well, if it doesn't work out, there's always divorce. No, maybe murder, but not divorce. <laughs> Gina's considered it many a time. I think she considered it this weekend. If we're not different from the world, there will be no no attraction for the world. Why why would I go to church? Y'all are no different. Bunch of hypocrites. Y'all do the same things I do. Why would I go to church and then have to give some money on top of it just to go and act like I act anyway? Folks, we've got to be different. Um, so we read this verse carefully and note that Paul makes a distinction between sin in the lives of Christians and sin in the life of an unbeliever. Folks, sin in the life of a believer is much worse. It's much worse. Paul says, man, you as believers, and that's why we, we, we're out here trying to win the lost world. They're lost. We're, we're to win them. But when you have someone who's a believer and now they've turned to sin and they're unrepentant in it, 
Folks, we have a duty to them and, and primarily to the Lord to do what he's told us to do and to exercise proper church discipline in that area. Um, we often expect the unsaved man out in the, in the world to, to, to we, we, we expect them to live in sin. But even the world expects Christians to be different. When they look at us, they expect us to be different. They expect you to live a life that's holy. They may not be able to explain that, but they know it when they see it. One reason the church today has so little influence in the world is because the world has so much influence in the church. We've got to get that out of here. Get it out of here. And Paul wraps up there. He says, therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. We sang that song at the start of the service, and I, I wrote a quick note on this. We talk about the trials, and we glory in the trials that we face as believers. And yet we as believers will do all we can sometimes to keep someone who's living in sin from going through trial, going through discipline in order to be brought back into, into relationship with Christ. I can be walking right with the Lord and go through all kind of trials, all kind of tribulation that the Lord is using for my good. Amen? And here we, 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 we want to work hard to keep someone from going through church discipline. Well, the church kicked them out. They were, they, were ha they were having an affair. They were doing this. They were doing whatever. And the church kicked them out. But I'm going to still hang out with them. And I'm going to still love on them. And I'm going to have this great life. I'm going to make them feel welcome. They need to know that they're loved. Folks, why don't we let God do the work that he wants to do in their life that he's prescribed? Not to be vindictive. Not to be judgmental. Not to be hateful. We do it because we love them. Has any of that been clear? Hope it's not clear as mud. I hope it's really clear. I hope you get uh, the, the gist of that. A lot this morning, a heavy, a heavy topic, a heavy topic. I, I, I hope we never have to exercise church discipline. Um, but we will. If needed, we will. I'm not a bit scared of it. I know Raymond's not a bit scared of it. I know John's not a bit scared of it. But, but I don't want to have to do that. I'd rather, if, if we see sin, but look, my job is not, I'm not on Facebook looking for your sin. I'm not. But, but please don't put your sin on Facebook, okay? <laughs> don't. If it's just glaring in the face, then I, I got to deal with it. If you want to go out and party or whatever, please don't put pictures up on Facebook. You're part of this church. If you're a member, think about what you're projecting to the world. But if we see certain things, we may have to address it. But we should hold each other accountable. It shouldn't have to be preacher and the elders had to come talk to me. We should be holding each other accountable. What are you doing in your life? What's, man, I saw this. Why, why would you say that? Why would you put that language on Facebook? You're a believer. You represent the Lord. You represent our church. Why would you be using that kind of profanity on Facebook? Folks, if you want to type it, type it. Just don't hit sin. Come on. <laughs> Delete it. We've got to live holy lives. We've got to hold each other accountable. And it's for the good of the individual. It's the good for our church. And it's for the good of this community. Amen. So if we have to do it, we'll do it. Now, how do you have invitation after that message? Let's stand, if you would. Pastor Aaron, I'm sorry. I should have already had y'all come. Y'all come on down.
So this morning, as we, as this time of invitation, 